Okay, so stop me if you've heard this one before. A giant tankard of Mentos was rolling down the street when it crashed into another massive truck filled with Coca-Cola. The explosion was the equivalent of a nuclear blast and it wiped out an entire city. Or maybe you've heard of tanker trucks leaving maple syrup tracks along the highway. As Vermont as this sounds, it actually happened in Oklahoma. On your Thursday morning, I'm Angela Kim coming to you all live where a tanker truck has actually rolled over up here. As you can see up the hill, this is as close as we can currently get. Uh, but crews here, they got the call around seven. Or what about the ice cream truck that overturned leaving kids to scavenge around it like vultures? You've probably heard of these weird situations in memes and cartoons like Family Guy. Sure, the maple syrup thing was real, but no tanker truck is going to spontaneously burst open, right? That sort of thing only happens in movies. The I-95 corridor here in the Northeast also slowed this morning by a massive tanker truck explosion. Just look at that. The crash killing one person and severing the southbound lane. We know what can take place when tankers do burst. Fuel tankers can cause massive disruption and chaos, and yes, fatalities too. It is tragic, and it often leads to questions about what we can do to avoid something like this in the future. Surely there has to be a way to keep this from happening again. However, strangely enough, some of the earliest forms of regulation we have around tankards don't come from a fuel tanker, but it actually comes from a situation that sounds all too familiar with what we mentioned earlier, an incident right out of a cartoon. Insert the Great Molasses Flood. And that's what we're going to talk about on today's episode of Dark Dives. Please note that this episode will discuss death in some detail. As sweet as this sticky situation sounds, it's actually far worse than sour at second glance. It's downright horrific. An enormous steel tank filled with more than 2 million gallons of molasses ruptured. To put that into perspective, imagine yourself at Niagara Falls for just a minute. You're standing there watching the waterfall and begin counting. After just under three seconds, 2 million gallons of water have fallen. Or maybe you want to think of it as two extremely large swimming pools. Either way, that's a lot of molasses that was very suddenly released into Boston. A 15-foot wave of brown syrup rushed through the streets and the sheer force managed to knock a nearby firehouse off its foundation and caused one home to be completely swept away. That house, where the Clarity family lived, was smashed into a train trestle. It's not as if these homes were built for syrupy, sugary goodness to wash over them. This was only 1919 after all. Molasses was in demand because it could be converted to industrial alcohol, a pretty damn important ingredient during wartime. But when the average person hears about it, you probably just think of gingerbread. Or when you saw that show Over the Garden Wall, then you might imagine them paired with potatoes. As a brief aside, I did try eating potatoes with molasses when I first saw this show, and I personally cannot recommend it, but hey, if you like it, good for you. But I digress. Even back in 1919, the situation seemed kind of silly when it was anything but. Quote, it was an awful thing that happened, Weaver, a member of the Friends of the Boston Harbor Walk says. The fact that it tends to be turned into a ha-ha story does an incredible disservice to the people who lost their lives. If you live in Boston, especially in the North End, chances are you know pretty damn well about Paul Revere's house, where the Tea Party or Boston Massacre happened, and where the original Regina Pizzeria is located. But the molasses flood? Maybe not. 
Maybe you picture a slow moving wave of molasses creeping down the streets. In actuality, the syrupy goo moved quite fast at about 50 feet per second. It buckled steel girders. It was insanely powerful. 10-year-old Pasquale Iantosca was killed when a train car swept off its tracks struck him. People drowned in the molasses. They were hit by debris. And some of the 150 or more injured suffered greatly from fractured skulls and broken backs. But the immediate deaths weren't necessarily the most sickening part of this. See, this also all happened in January. Once the temperature went down, those that died became, quote, entombed in the hardened sugar, forcing frantic workers to use saws and chisels to clear wreckage and retrieve bodies. That doesn't sound so funny imagining it's one of your loved ones now, does it? It just sounds sickening, like something out of a horror movie. Now, the immediate aftermath was devastating. Corpses weren't only covered in molasses either, but debris from the tank and the six collapsed buildings. 25 horses that died in the incident were also recovered. A newspaper from the time read, quote, according to the police, firemen, and other experts who have been working the sticky, smelly substance and in and about the twisted, broken, torn masses of wreckage, it is almost a foregone conclusion that other bodies will be uncovered. To what heights the list of dead will mount is problematical. The stories told by survivors too were also horrifying. One man, Isaac Yetten, had been hauling automobile inner tubes into a shed when he saw an electric railway car swinging toward him. Court transcripts say he was overtaken by a molasses wave and slammed against a door. Isaac managed to grab a ladder that a foreman threw him and survive after being carried about 35 feet in the molasses. An elderly woman, 78-year-old Elizabeth O'Brien, was walking with her sister at home, carrying a tub to wash some laundry. The wave knocked her down, tipped the tub over, and broke her jaw. Quote, when she woke up, the entire building was gone. Her sister was found alive in hospital days later, having suffered a stroke and disfigurement. Even firefighters, who you think would be more likely to survive as they're prepared for disaster, could not escape when the firehouse was knocked off of its foundation. One of them was trapped in an 18-inch crawl space and in his last moments, tried to keep his head above the molasses as it rushed inside. The wreckage was absolutely insurmountable. One body wasn't found until 11 days after the spill and another was pulled from the water under a wharf four months later. Thankfully, the salt water from the Boston Harbor helped wash away the molasses, millions of salt water being pumped in to do so. Apparently, the entire harbor was a shade of brown for months after the fact, and hydraulic pumps had to get the molasses out of people's basements. It wasn't until about June of that year that things were somewhat back to normal, like an eerie reminder. People reported the smell of molasses lingering in the North End, wafting out of basements during hot summers for decades to come. But why did this happen? Why this tanker? Why this day in 1919? Those questions, why did this happen, were the same questions Bostonians were left with after the spill. They weren't only curious, they were paranoid and looking for someone or something to blame. The Purity Distilling Company had created this tank in a precinct populated by poor Italian immigrants. And back in this day, anti-Italian biases were quite high. At first, some citizens believed that the Italians that built the tank perhaps made it weak on purpose. Others said that anarchists dropped a bomb inside the vat, but neither of those things were ultimately true. The answer was plain and simple, corporate greed. 
profit-hungry bosses ignored safety tests, and when molasses leaked down the sides of the tank, they painted it brown to disguise the leaks. And that's right, it was obvious that this steel balloon was at the very least deflating. But instead of keeping it from getting worse, those in charge of it hid it as best as they could. Some residents also reported the tank groaning and kids would use sticks to make primitive lollipops with the molasses that leaked out. So this really was no sudden accident. And the litigation that followed was also a disaster. 125 lawsuits were filed against the tank owners and 3000 witnesses were involved, resulting in about 45,000 pages of testimony and arguments being recorded. That's like reading War and Peace almost 35 times. According to the chamber's associate source, quote, there were so many lawyers involved, the courtroom couldn't hold them all. Naturally, the USIA tried to fight back. They spent upwards of $50,000 hiring expert witnesses, scientists, metallurgists, academics, and explosion experts to boost their case. And in today's dollars, that's over 800,000, by the way. But Judge Advocate Ogden listened to the evidence from both parties carefully whether it be Damon Hall for the plaintiffs or Charles Choate from the defense. And I have to give credit where credit is due as Ogden did genuinely investigate as to whether or not anarchists could have been behind this, especially since there had been a rash of bombings, shootings, and things of that nature at the time. It wasn't impossible. And as defense lawyer Choate claims, it could even be a rather easy thing to do. He stated, quote, there was a flight of steps that led to the top of the tank, which was necessary to permit the gaugers of US customs to make their measurements and keep their records. It was an easy thing for a person to go up those stairs, get into the top of the tank and drop down an explosive device through one of the four manholes. Not to mention USIA was almost exclusively involved in making alcohol for war munitions. So if someone wanted to target them, it would have been all too easy. This wasn't about destroying the lives of Boston's residents, but harming the war effort. And when spun that way, maybe it seems more likely. Charles insisted that the people who built the tank are good, honest men. They were skillful, earnest craftsmen, and they weren't to blame. Besides, the metallurgists who conducted an experiment with a replica tank found that dynamite would produce results exactly like the catastrophe of the Great Molasses Flood. And it wasn't the flow of molasses that could have damaged the tank in this way or disintegrated it, as we said earlier. It was the force of an explosion, one that would splatter molasses even to places where the wave never reached. Another factor to consider was that someone did attack New York City's financial district at high noon in September, 1920. Anarchists were blamed, though no one was formally arrested or charged with crimes. Still, if supposed anarchists could do this in the middle of the day in 1920, why not in 1919 to a molasses tank? And I won't lie, when it's presented that way, it does seem pretty compelling. Is it possible that this was actually an anarchist attack all along? How would molasses explode from a defective tanker? Shouldn't it just flow out? Well, maybe, but if you overfill a defective water balloon, the water doesn't simply flow outwards, the balloon can pop. And yes, water can splash. So perhaps it's not that compelling of an argument after all, if you think about it from a new angle. Plus, when you consider how badly the tank was leaking and creaking long before the incident, at the very least, that does point towards defects. However, witness testimony doesn't always go the defense's way, even when they thought it might. Here's how it went when Choate spoke with Wedger, an eminent state police chemist. 
Suppose a person had taken dynamite in some sort of a container to the top of the tank, with the fuse wound around the container, and lighted it with his pipe, or cigarette, or cigar, and dropped it through the manhole at the top, so that the burning end of the fuse had immediately gone under the molasses, would the molasses have put out the fuse? No sir. How much dynamite or nitroglycerin would be required to destroy the tank? Anywhere from 5 to 15 pounds, 12 or 15 pounds. How large a package, or container, would be required to hold that amount? 10 pounds would require a pipe 3 inches in diameter, about 2.5 feet long. As my source put it, Choate had drawn first blood. He seemed to get his testimony from an unpaid expert witness, whose word was above reproach that this wasn't an accident. Well, until the plaintiff's lawyer, Hall, spoke with him, that is. First, Hall asked him to describe a common explosion scene. At any explosion, Wetger said, the concussive force of the blast shatters windows and glass for many hundreds of feet from the actual bomb. Broken glass, Wegner said, is one of the almost inseparable evidences of a dynamite or a nitroglycerin explosion. So, given that, did you find any of the common evidences of a dynamite explosion at the molasses scene? I did not. Nowhere on that day were you able to find that cardinal evidence, broken glass, of a dynamite or high explosive explosion, were you? I did not find it. Did you see any effect that day, such as you would expect to find where a high explosive has been used? No, sir. Did you see any evidence in any of the parts of the tank wall that were collected from which you could make up your mind that dynamite or any other high explosives had caused the failure? I did not, no, sir. Not only did Wedger say he saw no evidence of an explosion, but he testified that his opinion, the one that Choate asked for, was only based upon the defense's hypothesis. Plus, since pressure against the sides of the tank could ferment the molasses, there was no proof of this either. It was looking like this wasn't due to a bombing. And I'll admit again, the language around the testing and fermentation was a bit tricky to decipher, but it is pretty clear that this wasn't the win the defense had hoped it would be. The entire case wasn't, honestly. Only one witness, a woman named Winifred, told the court that she had proof the tank exploded, alleging that she had seen smoke rising from the tank. However, when Hall pressed her as to where the smoke was coming from, she didn't prove to be the best witness. Quote, three times, McNamara threw her hands into the air, left the witness chair, and threatened to do some damage if she were compelled to testify further. Thankfully, judge advocate Hugh W. Ogden didn't side with the United States Industrial Alcohol Company when he took on the molasses flood case. He denied their claim of sabotage and concluded that this was, in fact, because of structural failure. The evidence simply was not on the defense's side, and other seemingly more reliable witnesses saw how poorly the construction of the tank had gone. Firefighter and former Marine engineer Stephen O'Brien described in detail how mismatched the rivets on the tank had been and, frankly, whether or not the tank had been blown up. It seemed like a miracle the thing hadn't fallen apart sooner. $300,000 in damages, or about $5.3 million in today's money, was awarded to the plaintiffs, and they got about $7,000 each. While it's great that the families were vindicated, nothing will bring back their loved ones who were lost in such a horrific tragedy. The company was undoubtedly to blame, but truthfully, so were poor regulations and complicated physics. For one, the tank had been topped off with a fresh shipment that hadn't cooled the day prior. For two, cold January temperatures slow and harden molasses. This meant that it may have moved quickly when released, but it hardened quickly too. 
Then in terms of regulation, well, that's an entire mess in of itself. Here's a sentence that sums it up quite nicely, though. The tank was made from a brittle steel susceptible to fracture, the same type used on the Titanic. I think we all know how things turned out in that regard, so what happened almost feels self-explanatory. As if it needs saying, Titanic happened years before this tank, and according to a structural engineer that researched the disaster, Renali Mayville, quote, no one disputed they under-designed the tank walls. He added, quote, the steel conformed to the standards of the time, but now it's known you need to have a higher ratio of manganese. That's exactly the problem in a nutshell. The walls were about 50% too thin, and yet they still conformed to safety standards of the time. They literally half-assed a job to make this tank, but it was deemed good enough all the same. As Mayville added, we know that it's important to reinforce stressed rivet holes and things of that nature. As for why it wasn't done, he's not sure. Yes, it was probably cost-cutting measures, at least in my opinion, but the tank practically disintegrated when it burst. Sure, you saved a couple bucks when building this thing, but was it worth the millions and millions paid out to families and the lives lost? Well, before we try to answer that question and see some of the modern day consequences and things that came out of this exact incident, we're gonna take a quick moment to thank today's sponsor. And hey, are you tired of the ads? Do you hate them? Well, if you don't wanna see the ads anymore, make sure you head on over to patreon.com Illuminati. There you'll be able to find episodes without ads. You'll be able to get behind the scenes look at episodes and even bonus episodes. So make sure to check that out at patreon.com Illuminati. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by the big wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought, well, what's the catch? But after talking to them and using their service, it all made sense. There really isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. I've been using Mint Mobile at this point, two and a half years, getting close to three years at this point, and I have never looked back since I switched. Now I pay for Mint Mobile's like unlimited everything plan, which is $30 a month, which is unlimited data, unlimited talk, text, everything. And again, 30 bucks a month in comparison to what I used to pay, which is closer to 120 bucks a month. So I've been saving about $90 a month for almost three years at this point, And that really adds up. So for anyone who hates their phone bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless at just 15 bucks a month. They give you the best rate, whether you're buying for one or for a family. And at Mint, family lines start at just two lines. All plans are gonna come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number with all your existing contacts, or do what I did and get everything brand new. So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, make sure you go to mintmobile.com slash darkdives. That's mintmobile.com slash darkdives. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash darkdives. Now, when it comes to looking at the Great Molasses Flood in retrospective lenses, obviously, this was undoubtedly preventable. No one should have to suffer this death, but at least at the end of the day, there was some good news that came out of this. The assurance that this wouldn't be allowed to happen to anybody else. A disaster this big could not go ignored. 
Any of you watching who remember 9-11 or were forced to remember it every single year in school will also remember how it changed airline security forever. Those of you who weren't born or were too little, you've probably heard the stories. And while this was on a different scale, the Boston molasses flood did a similar thing for tankards. The Guardian wrote about this just before the 100 year anniversary of the tragedy, not only telling the stories of survivors we heard earlier, but explaining how the lawsuit changed modern regulations as a whole. The reason it's so important is because it was the very first class action lawsuit against a major corporation. And that's right. By now we hear all the time about how bad businesses can effectively get away with murder and just see the fines as the cost of doing business. It's a very frustrating reality that we live in. But class action lawsuits, while not by any means a cure-all, are one of the only ways for victims to get some sense of justice against these terrible practices. And finally, this case told corporations that were coming for them. One case I've also seen mentioned multiple times throughout my research is the Coconut Grove Fire. And while that could potentially be an entirely separate episode, and let me know if you'd like it to be, the Grove Fire was the molasses flood of fire standards, so to speak. And this also took place in Boston, so I'm sure you can see the similarities already. Coconut Grove itself was effectively a nightclub, as those didn't officially exist at the time, but it was considered what was called a restaurant club. Though the club fell on hard times during Prohibition and in the 30s, it was, quote, the place to be in 1942. Not only was there a bar, the Melody Lounge, but the Grove had also various bar areas, a ballroom, and a dining room with a retractable roof so you could see the night sky. As Boston fire history explains, it all started with one faulty light bulb, one that had potentially been unscrewed by a couple hoping to keep their date a bit more private if you catch my drift. A busboy was asked to fix it one busy evening, and since he couldn't find it around the artificial palm trees, he lit a match to find the socket. Quote, a moment later, several patrons thought they saw a flicker of a flame in the palm tree of the ceiling decorations. As they watched, they saw the decorations change color and appeared to be burning, but without a noticeable flame. After several moments, the palm tree burst into flames and the bartenders tried to extinguish the fire with water and seltzer bottles. So to put it lightly, things escalated quite quickly. The revolving door was jammed, a fireball of flames and toxic gas raced around the stairs, the crowd crushing was immense, and many of the exits themselves were locked or not easily identified. The final death count is one of the highest in the country for a single fire event, not including a collapse, and that is 490 died and 166 were injured. You know how you hear fire exits are located here and here whenever you go see a movie, a play, or a concert? You know how those bright red exit lights are almost impossible to ignore, even in a dimly lit bar? Well, this event is actually why. Knowing where exits are at all times is important in an emergency. Plus a ridiculously excessive amount of flammable decorations, also probably not the best idea. According to BPL, in the short term, revolving doors were banned and all nightclubs and theaters were closed for a week. In the long term, fire and building codes were strengthened. Some good did come from this tragedy, if only to ensure that it didn't happen to anyone else, or at least didn't happen in the same way, not as easily, or not as frequently. We can't stop fires completely, but if this promoted better exit signs and escape routes, then that is something that came from this horrible event that is a positive. Honestly, I do just find it frustrating how it so often takes a tragedy and devastation to realize that something has to be done and that something needs to be changed or to bully businesses into acting with people's best interest in mind. 
If these companies had taken proper precautions, whether that entails asking an engineer to look over their designs or ensuring all exit doors are actually accessible, then needless deaths could have been avoided. Instead, mandatory and strict regulations are all put in place to force them to care and take a second look at their business practices, whether they'd like to or not. So no, this doesn't mean that nightclubs will never have these issues or that tanker trucks are perfectly safe to this day. But we can only hope that we can learn from our past. And with that being said, that's where we're going to end today's episode of Dark Dives. I hope you learned something new here today. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing to stay up to date on all the latest episodes. Thank you so much for joining me and I'll see you in the next one. Bye. I'm looking for a car that's been tricked out to look like an ice cream truck. I'm, I'm sorry, what? You know, with colorful pictures of ice cream treats and it plays a tune that's fun for the young children. Da, 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 da.